This episode is brought to you by The Grinning Goat, Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary and an online store that ships across Canada and worldwide. As a Paw & Order podcast listener, you can save 15% off Lefric backpacks and bags during the month of September by using the code PAWSEPTEMBER at grinninggoat.ca. This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system, Animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. Okay, everyone, welcome to episode 84 of the Paw and Order podcast. I'm Camille Lapchuk, one of your hosts, joined by my co-host, Jessica Scott-Reed. Hello, Jess. How are you? Hello, Camille. I am good. I am the end of summer and I'm getting back into the fall vibes and ready to be normal again. <laughs> right? Don't, <laughs> yeah, you, don't you get that feeling? You get that feeling like the end of summer. You're like, okay, I'm ready for routine. I'm ready for sweaters. <laughs> I'm actually wearing a sweater today. It was like 12 degrees when I got up this morning and left. It's supposed to be like 23 today, so it's not going to be a very fun walk home, but yeah. <laughs> I was just feeling the sweater, you know? <laughs> this is that time of year where they say layers, layers, layers. You wake up in the fall and then in the evening it's uh, summer again. Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. But um, yeah, I'm also, I'm sort of excited for the fall, but also kind of dreading it. I'm just, they released new modeling in Ontario yesterday yeah. about COVID projections. And I think we're just in for another like fairly unpleasant fall and winter, but. <sighs> yeah, it's, hard to, it's hard to know. It's hard to know. I'm trying to stay hopeful. My daughter starts kindergarten. It's going to be a bit of a scary frontier for her for a lot of reasons. And I'm just hoping that it goes okay. Come on, Winnipeg. We can do it. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Well, you guys are still doing okay for cases. So maybe you can keep them tamped down for Let's hope. a while. Let's hope. So what have you been up to? Well, I had a week off, which was nice. And it was funny. I actually, I took two weeks off in June and I was like, okay, that'll be my summer vacation. That's pretty good. But I took the two weeks off to renovate right. and I ended up replacing a floor. That's not really a vacation, <laughs> is it? No. And I realized now it wasn't a vacation. At the time I was like, oh, this is great. My brain is doing different things. I'm doing stuff with my hands instead of just sitting in front of a computer screen. And then you I got tired. After, you got tired. Yeah, <laughs> I got tired. But after having taken a real vacation with some awesome friends. I was hanging out with um, Sayara Thurston, Gabriel Wilgen, Joanne MacArthur, Land Divine, all awesome friends of the podcast, yes. friends of Animal Justice and friends of animals. Yes, indeed. Uh, we just had a really lovely time at a cottage on a lake. Um, swam back and forth to an island every day, Ooh. which was cool. That sounds like a vacation, Camille. It was a real vacation. There was a dock involved. Um, oh, <laughs> God, dock one, th involved. one thing. There were some animals, too. The animals were snakes, and they were all swimming in the water. <laughs> Oh, that'll test your your uh, loyalty to animals right there. <laughs> I know, I know. At one point, a snake was right behind me, and Sarah's like, "Don't move, oh, a snake." <laughs> But water snakes are pretty low-key, right? Like, they're not really... They're just creepy to see. Yeah, yeah. Snakes are fine. I mean, they're not trying to mess with us. They're just trying to eat. Be on their way. Themselves, right. do what they do. Just got to take a moment to be logical. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. How about you? I know you also had some vacation. Yes, I took a whole two weeks off, which I realized doing with a four, almost five-year-old really isn't much of a vacation. But we had tons and tons of fun. Uh, Clover and I went on lots of great adventures, spent a lot of time in nature. And then uh, to top it off was her birthday party, which uh, last year we talked about her birthday party. I'm always really trying to look for and showcase how to have ethical animal experiences for birthday parties because so many... So often people want to do petting zoos and regular zoos and things like that. Um, So last year, if anyone remembers, we went to a wildlife rehab center, got great presentation, did some crafts, made a nest. This year we went to an animal sanctuary, uh, a newer one to Manitoba that just recently opened up to the public called Rainbow Ranger Station, which is so lovely just outside the city of Winnipeg. Uh, And it was perfect. We got a great tour, learned a lot about the animals, brought some of my non-vegan friends to learn about the animals. And the cow uh, at this particular sanctuary was one that was at a petting farm two years ago, uh, one that Clover and I went sort of undercover uh, and investigated and took photos and saw this poor baby calf who had been taken from the dairy industry and kids were crawling all over him. He was out in the sun. There was no shade. It was just awful. Uh, And it really um, sparked interest in the rescue community. And I can't really say how it happened because it's sort of under wraps but eventually this calf ended up at Rain- Rainbow Ranger Station and now he's a big beautiful boy and it's so lovely to see that sort of rescue in action and the, the fruits of all of our labor so it just was the perfect birthday party lots of vegan treats she opted for vegan donuts instead of cake or cupcakes this year so oh. we got from O Donuts which is a great uh, donut shop here in Winnipeg that makes amazing vegan donuts and it was all perfect yeah Wow, that that sounds amazing. And so is it is it just farmed animals that are at the ranger station? Yes. Wildlife too? No, farmed this animals? is just the farmed animals. They have big geese. So they've all come from different sort of situations. Uh, lots of rabbits because, you know, sanctuaries mm-hmm. always seem to be inundated with rabbits. Uh, cow, goats, no sheep or pigs yet. Uh, lots of hens. They're, um, they're home now to one of the hens that was found at the Brady Landfill. Um, oh. One of those situations. I think it happened twice here in Manitoba where hens had been gassed, spent hens had been gassed and then trucked to the landfill. And twice at least um, live hens were found amongst the dead. I've written about it a couple of times. And one of those hens now lives there. Two of them had gone, one passed away soon after arriving and one is now there thriving. So that's always a really great story to sort of tell visitors to the sanctuary. Oh, that is nice. Yeah, the, the story of those hens is so heartbreaking. Yes. I know we talked about that, I think, at the po- on the podcast after it happened. Um, but just horrible that farmers regularly dump animals like that. Yeah. Just because they're no longer profitable. So good that you were able to bring some people along yep. and hopefully inspire them to uh, see animals as more than just food. I think so. Good yeah. job. And, to, and to, to pair it with vegan treats is always a good little kicker. Oh yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> I've actually been on a bit of a birthday kick myself lately. It seems like a lot of my friends have late September or late August, early September birthdays. So I had one last weekend. I had one last night. Look another you, one this party weekend. girl. I know. I'm just trying to get it in while we can because I don't think we're going to be able to for much longer. Um, But found a couple new cake options. Uh, Got a cake from Bloomer's Bakery in Toronto coming for the party this weekend. There's just so many treat options there. And I I really enjoy that Clover went for the donuts. Yeah, that was her choice. Yeah, I I got some cupcakes for the day before because, of course, it was a two-day birthday uh, from Eiffel Tower Pastry Shop here in Winnipeg. Great chocolate vegan cupcakes. And then for her kids' party, she wanted donuts. So who was I to... uh, to say no. (laughs) 
Yeah, seriously. Encourage that behavior. No kidding. <laughs> uh, well, we were on a little bit of a reduced schedule for the summer listeners. As you'll know, we just did a, a couple episodes. And uh, we're now back to our regular schedule for the fall. So you can expect to hear from us every two weeks. So we'll have one more in September. Um, and then the next episode after that, we'll be coming to you live from the Animal Law Conference. Right. Which is coming up October 1st to 3rd. If you haven't purchased your ticket yet, I encourage you to do so. Uh, CanadianAnimalLawConference.ca. And let me just fill you in about a couple of the really special things that are happening at this event. So the Friday, uh, if you're a student and you're listening to this, the Friday is devoted to a student conference. So there's going to be a student AGM, a career panel, um, opportunities for students to share strategies about raising the profile of animal law on campus, which is cool. I know last year was kind of not an ideal year for student clubs on school mm. campuses because no one was there in person. Right. But people are mostly back in class this year in person to some extent, or at least doing a hybrid model. So it does seem like lots more people are ordering brochures, keen to get out there and do stuff. So that student conference will be a good chance to chat about that. And the other thing happening on Friday is actually a scholar's track of presentations that we're um, hosting in coordination with the Brooks Institute for Animal Rights, Law and Policy, a great US uh, organization. And there's four amazing scholars talking in depth about really important animal law and policy topics. And uh, so that's all day on Friday. Then Friday night, here's the real kicker. We are kicking the conference off with a keynote panel debate. Now, for those of you who are into the animal law stuff or have thought about the uh, distinctions between animals as property and animals as persons, this is going to be really exciting, Jess, because we have several of the leading thinkers. So we kind of have the um, old school, original thinkers on this. We've got Gary Francione, who's written extensively. That's exciting. Yeah. And he's written extensively about animals as property and why that status doesn't serve them well. And uh, we've got Stephen Wise, who's the head of the Non-Human Rights Project Mm -hmm. and is seeking personhood for chimpanzees and elephants and potentially other animals. Uh, And then on top of that, we have, um, oh, I think I said four earlier, but there's five. We've got Angela Fernandez at University of Toronto. Wonderful, Angela, who has written about um, quasi-personhood, which is a bit of an intermediary form of um, a status for animals that's somewhere between personhood and property. Ah. We've got Manisha Deka at University of Victoria, who's just written a new book proposing a whole new model of um, status for animals, which centers around the idea of beingness. And, And her ideas are sort of a critique of liberalism, which is the sort of fundamental tenet of of law in at least our system. Um, And finally, we've got Jessica Eisen out of the University of Alberta, who's also fabulous and um, has deep thoughts and critiques of of all of the ideas uh, and has written a lot about habeas corpus and personhood issues herself. I love her. So you guys, I know, she's great. She's so great. So this is going to be, I think, a really interesting panel, probably also a little bit spicy because I know the panelists all have very disparate views. So we're ah. hoping to really get Ooh, into those questions. That sounds hot. I can't wait for that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's moderated by Doug Kaiser, who is a professor at the Yale School of Law and is also fantastic. So cool event. And then, of course, through the rest of the weekend, there's just tons of cool people. You're speaking. Yeah, I'm on a panel, uh, something to do with uh, uh, pandemic puppies. Mm-hmm. Yes, which is a very hot topic right now. So I'm very excited about that. Yeah, still a hot topic. Um, I'm going to moderate a couple things. Um, Yeah, overall,
well, it's just going to be pretty cool. I wish we were gathering in person, yeah. not in the cards this year, hopefully next year. It was so fun, the original where we all met in person. I, I often think back to that event thinking, oh, those were the days. <laughs> those were the One days. One of the best weekends ever. Right? It really <laughs> yeah. was. And then it's like, it was such a tease because so quickly then it was taken away. We haven't been able to do it since. So this will be great. But when we can finally meet all in person, it's going to be doubly amazing. Indeed. Okay. So get your ticket if you haven't already, CanadianAnimalLawConference.ca. And again, the event runs October 1st through 3rd. Um, oh, also you get access to the recorded panels. They're all going to be held live, but we are recording them. So if you can't show up that weekend in person, you can still get a ticket and, and show up um, after and watch them at your leisure. Oh, good idea. Yeah. All right, Jess, we have over 170 five-star reviews on iTunes, wow. which is pretty cool. And I'm just going to re read one of our new reviews. We love when you guys leave us reviews because it helps people find this podcast and it helps us spread the word about animal law and policy in Canada. So Maria, oh, sorry, Mariana Boney left us a review. Mariana says, I've been a patron for almost two years and just realized I hadn't yet left a review. So here it is. As a Canadian animal rights activist who's considering law school, this podcast is simply perfect. I am so thankful for all the hard work Camille, Jessica, Peter, and Shannon put into making this project a reality. Keep up the great work, guys. Oh, thank, thank you, you Mariana. Mariana. That's so lovely. Oh, that's so great. And yeah, don't forget, you can support us on Patreon like Mariana does for as little as a dollar a month. We have Patreon prize tiers at the $5 level, you get a mailed card to say thanks, as always, but now you get a pawn order sticker too. At the $20 level, you get your choice between an official pawn order mug or a t-shirt, which we know we all love. Uh, but we also have t-shirts available for everyone now too at shop.animaljustice.ca. And anyone that supports us at the $10 a month or more level gets a 15% discount at the online store. Woohoo! Woohoo! <laughs> All right. Well, we've got a main interview today with Edie Bowles, who's a solicitor and founder of an amazing UK animal law firm, the first of its kind. She's going to talk to us about a stunning new case. But first, Jess, we've got some news to share with everyone. Yeah, this has been a, a busy little period, hasn't it? Yeah. So did you hear we're in a federal election? Oh, I didn't know. I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> All the lawn signs are up. The yes. debates are happening. People are knocking on doors. It's happening it's, fast. It. It's really, I feel like the, the progress is really happening fast. The campaigns are short. Yeah, five weeks, which is, I think, the statutory minimum. Like, it can't be any shorter than uh, this. Okay. And, um, you know, I'm always disappointed when we have elections now because I was promised in 2015 by Justin Trudeau that we were not going to have any more first past the post elections. Yet here we are. Here we are. Happened. Here we are. <laughs> Although I have to say, as we're going to talk about seeing animal welfare issues taking sort of a much bigger position than we've ever seen before, that part is really, really rocking my world right now. Damn, is it ever cool. It so let's so just cool. recap yes. the week that was for animals in this election. So like, as you pointed out, um, I'm not aware of any previous election campaign before 2021 where a party has included the substantial animal welfare um, section. I mean, occasionally they have little drips and drops yes. in their platforms. And I don't think there's ever been a campaign announcement, like a press conference or a mm. day dedicated to an animal welfare policy from a party. Or like a commercial even. A commercial, yeah. <laughs> but on Monday of this week, so, you know, Monday, you know, the end of August, by the time you folks will yep. be listening to this, uh, the Conservative Party, so to its credit, actually includes an entire animal welfare section in its platform. And they were first. And they were first. Who? Somehow they were the first to do Who it. Who would have thought? 
Who would have thought? I mean, to be to be frank, the conservatives haven't always had a great track record on animal protection issues. There's lots of individual MPs who are good, but um, they've been pro egg gag at the provincial level and supported it federally too. Um, many conservatives voted against the whale and dolphin mm-hmm. legislation. Um, you know, and that's that's you know that's a blanket statement about sort of the party leadership. I'm not trying to imply that individual conservatives don't care about these issues because they do. Yeah. And there has been some great work there too to champion the cosmetics testing bill. Um, but I think the fact that they're the ones first out of the gate on animal protection policies is pretty amazing. Yeah, I would Bravo. I would agree. I mean, like you said, you do have um, the animal justice's voters for animals campaign. You guys, you you do have at least one conservative, if not more conservative on your list. So there are some individuals. But yeah, this was definitely surprising. <laughs> yeah, it was. So so they came out of the gate. Uh, Aaron O'Toole, I think he went to Dogtail's Sanctuary in King City, Ontario to do this announcement, which is a great sanctuary for horses and for dogs. Yes, yes, I love them. And uh, I don't know if you had a chance to, to look at what he's proposing, Jess, but he sort of emphasized, uh, the main thing that he emphasized in the actual announcement was puppy mills. Yeah. So we talked about how the conservatives would ban puppy mills and also restrict imports of puppies into Canada from unethical breeding situations. So that's good to hear. Uh, yeah, that, was a, bi- that parties. was a big one. That was a big, and I really feel like I saw an immediate reaction from animal advocates online, um, how excited they were to see it and how this was perhaps going to sway their vote. Um, my immediate concern, of course, is, and I tweeted it this morning saying, I, I just really want to know what it really means. Like to me, I'm, I'm asking, does this just mean that, you know, puppy mill operators are just going to have to do a bit more paperwork to, to legitimize themselves? Or is this actually going to mean that backyard breeders and mass puppy factories are going to be shut down? I want to know the difference. It's important. And as they say, the devil is always in the details. Yeah. So this could be a meaningless, toothless policy, depending on how it's implemented, or it could be something pretty serious. I mean, my view has always been that we need to license and regulate breeders and just restrict, A, the number of dogs that can be bred and the number of litters that can be produced. But uh, yeah, we'll see, you know, if... Well, we'll see what happens with this promise. But yes. the other stuff that they um, that they discussed, so they reiterated their commitment to outlaw cosmetic testing, which is good to see. Um, they did make a statement in their platform too about the links between pandemics and the wild animal trade. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was important to see. Um, we know that pandemic viruses uh, tend to originate from wild animal species and then they jump over to humans and cross that species barrier. And we can't um, you know, protect ourselves against the next pandemic when we still have this dangerous wild animal Animal trade, not just the illegal trade, but the legal one too. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, factory farms. Now they didn't have much to say about factory farms, perhaps unsurprisingly. I don't think many parties do, no. but yeah, I mean, I, um, I think it would be, it would be a missed opportunity to not discuss this, this issue. And the wildlife trade has been, you know, under much scrutiny, both legal and illegal in Canada for a long time. So I think if you're going to make an animal welfare policy or, or part of your platform that to not have something to do with wildlife in that way would be a missed. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, okay. So that was Monday. Two days later on Wednesday, the liberals come out with their platform. And again, there's an animal welfare section in there. Oh, and it is, it is pretty glorious. So I could tell you, you sent me the text message first thing in the morning. (laughs) I read through it. You know, you see some of the same stuff uh, regarding cosmetic testing um, and uh, the same thing, which I think is also important to point out between both um, uh, parties, uh, the discussion about keeping pets with, um, domestic abuse uh, victims or survivors, keeping them together, which is definitely an issue that should have been discussed a long time ago. But then on that list, you come down halfway and you see that big, beautiful, bold sentence, promise to ban the live export of horses for slaughter, period. 
pretty freaking awesome. There it was. I'm getting chills right now thinking about it again. <laughs> so I immediately text my friend Jan Arden. <laughs> Just to make sure she saw it, assuming for sure she'd already seen it, but she hadn't. So then she called me and she's freaking out. <laughs> she's like, Jessica, I'm driving to the studio. I can't read what you sent me. But she knew what I was talking about, but I sent her a screenshot and she says, you got to read it to me. So I'm reading it to her in the car and she is choking up and we are just having this moment together as she's driving oh. to the studio and she is just like, oh my God, they're hearing us. They're hearing us, Jessica. She did swear a couple times in there and I, I said, yeah, Jen, you just keep going. You just keep going. So now her and her team are, you know, rallying behind it. They're going to come up with some, some more ways to put power behind this because what a big moment that is. That's pretty awesome to see that kind of recognition. That's amazing. And credit to the work that Jan's done, um, the work that Canadian Horse Defense Coalition has done. I mean, so many of us have been working on this for so long and, uh, yeah, it it has paid off. Clearly the issue has reached a point where policymakers can't ignore it anymore. So yeah, it's amazing. And Jess, that's not the only thing Mm -hmm. that is in this platform. They also are committing to, um, it's nice to see this, a specific timeline to end cosmetic testing, as they say, as soon as 2023. Mm -hmm. And also significant, phasing out toxicity testing on animals by 2035. That's huge, Yeah, actually. that is. That is. I, I mean, these things have been in the works a little bit, right? We've been discussing this for a, wh- a little while recently. But to see it, you know, right put put in there as policy would be amazing. Yeah. And uh, they, they did make some commitments about toxicity testing, some sort of like non-binding commitments in the preamble to proposed amendments to the Pesticides and right. Toxic Products Act. Um but there was never a timeline and there was never anything specific about a phase out. It was more like, oh, we'll move away from this. So it's really good to see the specificity. Mm-hmm. Um, they also mention working to curb the illegal wildlife trades and and elephant and rhinoceros ivory trading. Yep. Um, that's, that's something that's already in the works, yes, the elephant and rhinoceros there. ivory. Yeah, so that's not really new. And I'm a little disappointed that they didn't um, make the, the link between the wildlife trade and pandemics and also that they're just focused on the illegal wildlife trade yep. because... That's not really the issue here. The legal wildlife trade is bigger yes. and just as concerning. And also when they t- when they discuss about protections for animals in captivity, that's super vague, obviously. Like, what the heck is that going to mean? Like, that could mean yeah. so many things. I would really love to know more about that. I suspect they're throwing a, throwing a bone, so to speak, to um, Senator Murray, or previous Senator Murray Sinclair's mm-hmm. bill, which would have phased out captivity for great apes yes. and um, elephants. I wish they would have been more specific about that. I wish so, too, because we're kind of now left wondering what it means. Yeah, it could, it could literally so, just mean a new, you know, BS overseeing body for zoos, right? Yeah. Yeah. Given or giving funding to the zoo industry or something, right? Like it could mean anything. Yeah. So yeah, more details are needed there. Um, Of course, no one has yet laid out any commitments about farming, um, about subsidies to the animal agriculture industry, about national animal welfare legislation, about um, farmed animal welfare legislation, which doesn't exist at the moment. So let's just say these commitments are scratching the surface of what needs to be done. But I don't want to discount the fact that this is a huge moment because we've never seen major parties talking about these issues before in campaigns and now we are and it's a testament to all the work of thousands of Canadians to put these issues on the map and make sure politicians know about them. Yeah, I think we should take take this bit of victory uh, as it comes because it definitely feels like that. There's so much more to go. Uh, but yeah, let's take the win. <laughs> 
Yeah, totally. And so um, not much yet from the NDP Greens or Block. I know um, the NDP platform does contain some language about the wildlife trade. Um, I haven't seen what the Greens and Block have yet. Uh, hopefully we'll know more by the end of the campaign. So we'll keep you posted on that. And, but we did um, hear just- something from Kimberly, right? Yesterday she said that she she asked that, that question and that Anne-Marie, she actually recognized the plant-based food issue, right? Yeah, yeah. So... Um, we well let me just start by talking about voters for animals for a minute so you mentioned that a minute ago jess and voters for animals uh as many listeners if you've been listening for a while you probably already know that we've done endorsements and gotten involved in past elections and we issue animal friendly uh endorsements for candidates from all parties doesn't matter what political stripe you are if you're somebody who's worked in parliament to help animals uh there's a possibility we might endorse that person so those endorsements are out there but the website has more than just that there's a couple dozen endorsements because we don't have the resources or sometimes there's not somebody in each riding who's been a champion for animals hopefully one day there will be Um, but for now there's endorsements plus a toolkit of resources to help individual citizens activists and voters raise the profile of these issues in their own ridings and one thing that we're recommending that people do of course is ask all the campaigns and the candidates where they stand on these issues but show up to debates and ask those questions mm-hmm. too. make sure that not only are the candidates hearing it but fellow voters in the room or in the zoom room in this case mm-hmm. are getting an earful um so yeah as you mentioned kimberly carroll who's a director of animal justice and director of the animal justice academy too uh, went to the toronto center debates last night which is where green party leader Annie paul is running um the incumbent is liberal Mar- Yen. Uh, I think the NDP candidate is Brian Chang, and I, I forget the names of the other ones. But she asked them about the links between animal agriculture and climate change. Mm-hmm. And uh, did you see what her response was or what, what the candidates' responses were? Yes, it was pretty, pretty uh, disappointing. She, and, and she also discussed about moving subsidies from uh, animal agriculture to a plant-based food system. That was the, the parts of her question. It sounds like the Green Party was the only one that even acknowledged what she was really asking, the other ones just sort of took it as an opportunity to, to discuss their talking points on climate change rather than actually talking about animal agriculture and subsidies and plant-based food system. But the Green Party leader, she actually said in the beginning something like, we need to move to a plant-based food system, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's what Kimberly's reporting. So that's wow. pretty major. Yeah. Pretty major. And, uh, you know, I used to be involved in the Green Party, just declaring my biases here. I'm not um, involved in partisan politics at the moment, but one of the reasons I was involved is because that party system historically had decent policies. So it's good to see Annemi Paul, the new leader, carrying that forward. Um, one of the MPs that we endorsed actually from the Greens, Paul Manley in Nanaimo, Nanaimo Ladysmith is his writing. He actually proposed a subsidy in the dying days of parliament, or sorry, not a subsidy, um, a motion just to remove subsidies from the animal agriculture industry, redirect them toward plant-based out of recognition of uh, the horrific effect that these uh, subsidies have on the environment. Duh. Yeah. <laughs> so this is what I would love to see more of in this yes. election discussion. Yes. So if you're listening, it is so easy to go to a debate in your riding, especially when debates are on Zoom. All you have to do, so one question I get a lot, I don't know if you hear this from people just too, but people are always wondering how you find out about debates. Um, there's no like central database of debates, unfortunately, mm-hmm. but candidates tend to list them on their website. So if you go find a candidate and you're writing, check their website, they usually have an events section where you can see what's coming up. Mm. So that's a good way. You can also just call their campaigns and say, hey, I'd like to come to a debate. Do you know when they are? And they, they will definitely tell you. Um, or you can check out newspaper listings or listen to the radio, try to find Facebook events, just do some Googling and, and see what's up. 
So find out when the debates are, show up, make sure you get your hand in that queue for a question and put those candidates on the spot. Good tips, good tips. And I would suggest if you want more uh, information to sort of arm yourself with, to go in to talk about this issue of uh, animal agriculture subsidies and transitioning to a plant-based food system, uh, Nation Rising is a really great lobby group um, that will, if you go to their website, they have all that information that you need. They're very articulate in this exact specific topic. So I'd go there for the information before you uh, jump and ask those questions yeah super good resources and um, that's that's great for plant-based animal agriculture stuff we also have a list of general questions on voters for animals.ca that you can check out in the resources section um, and you can also sign up on that website you can take the animal protection pledge where you're basically as a voter committing to use your vote in some way to help animals now i appreciate there's a lot of things people consider when they're voting i'm not trying to tell anyone you should vote just based on animals but i do think more and more people are considering it and in fact world animal protection just has done polling that shows that 70 percent of people say that animals are important or somewhat important to them when they think about casting their vote. So hopefully this is the election where parties are finally starting to appreciate that and we might actually see some action. Let's see. I mean, obviously the ball is rolling. We can see that the, the importance of animal welfare issues is finally making its way in there. Yeah. All right. Well, enough about the election. Wow, we went on about that for a while. <laughs> I knew <laughs> there's a lot to say. I knew that was going to happen. Okay, we'll move on to the yeah. next story. So, in my city of Winnipeg, uh, lots of things are happening for animals. The city of Winnipeg is currently seeking public consultation on proposed new animal welfare bylaws. So, again, nothing to do with farmed animals in here. Uh, mostly about companion animals and a bit about um, wildlife. So, there's a lot in here for for people to consider, but there's a few points that really stuck out to me. Um, first of all, the prohibition of 24-7 dog tethering and outdoor dog housing, like that's major. That is such an issue here uh, in Manitoba, um, along with the prohibition of leaving animals uh, in cars when it's warmer than 22 degrees or colder than minus 10 degrees. That would be a huge move because they're already so often dealing with calls of people leaving animals in cars. Can't believe it's still a thing, but it's still a thing. Yeah. Still a thing. Um, also, another big one, the removal of breed-specific legislation. So the city of Winnipeg has had a ban on pit bull-type dogs for a, well, as long as I can really remember, um, which, as we know, is BS. Um, mm -hmm. So they're, they're talking about, I mean, they're really just modernizing their thinking on it. Um, it reads to say that they want to focus more on behavior of dogs rather than breed. Like, oh, who would have thought? What a great idea. Uh, so that would be a huge one. I think my favorite one of all, it's hard to choose, a prohibition on glue traps. Woo! I can't even believe it. I have been <laughs> writing about this and advocating it from a very small quarter where very few people care about this issue, but the ones that do are super, super adamant about it. So there was a, a petition that went out, I think about two years ago, um, to try and get the top sellers, Canadian Tire, Walmart, different retailers to stop selling them. They didn't give a shit. Uh, so they still sell them. Every time I go into those stores, I take the glue traps and I shove them at the back of the shelf nice. and put the other, I guess, less awful traps in front of them every time, just as a little good, stick good activism. But that's a big one. Um, and also a prohibition on outdoor lethal trapping, which we've seen in Manitoba to be a really big issue. Um, even within the city limits of Winnipeg. So this would give more, uh, you'd have to be more of a licensed pest control uh, or government agency to be able to use these traps and they'd have to be much more signage. So that's definitely would be a huge step in the right direction. Uh, we've had awful stories of dogs being killed uh, in the city of Winnipeg over the last uh, year or so. I mean, it's an ongoing problem. It's It never really stops. 
Uh, and then there's about the exotic pets. And Camila, I'd love to hear your take on the. There's so there's. It's not that much about the exotic pets. It's more limiting the number, but not really limiting. It's not really changing what pets can be kept. It actually does have a pretty oh, fundamental change to that. Oh, yeah, it does. yeah. So, yeah, it's really progressive. And just hats off to Winnipeg for for considering this and all the work they've done on it. But what they're considering doing is implementing what's called a positive list. Yes. So just the way a lot of exotic animal bylaws are structured right now, it's like here's a list of the animals you can't have. Okay. When you think about how many millions of species there are, that's kind of hard. It's kind of tough to mm-hmm. list off all the ones. A positive list is like here's the ones that you can have, mm. and you only put animals on that positive list list if it can be proven that they are appropriate to be kept as pets. Uh, We know that so many exotic animals, like especially reptiles and snakes and birds and fishes who are kept uh, confined right now as pets, they just don't do well. Welfare scientists say that they don't belong in captivity because it's stressful for them. It's bad for them. It's just not good. So Winnipeg is saying, here's a shorter list of animals that you can have. And of course, that includes like cats and dogs and rabbits and, um, you know, some guinea pigs, gerbils, animals like that, that are commonly kept and are appropriate to be kept as pets. I still think that the list is probably a little bit too big. That's, a that's bunch of what lizards. I was feeling. It looked like when I'm reading through it, I mean, I, I used to have birds and I can't even think about having birds that I used to do that, that I'd keep birds in cages. So even just seeing that, you know, budgies and cockatiels are still on the list, which I know are very popular pets still. I just hate seeing it. The list does still look long to me, but you know, we're, we're crazy animal people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's still long for sure. But I think, um, I think there's a reasonable chance that it can be reduced over time. And you know what, even if it is long, it's still a heck of a lot better than what other jurisdictions have. Um, but yeah, here's, so just as you mentioned, there's a consultation going on right now and here's where listeners can come in and play a role in helping this pass. So the people who own exotic pets are pretty rabid sometimes about what they perceive as their ownership rights over those animals. And they get very upset about the idea that they might not be able to keep an animal that they want to keep. So those folks have come out in full force. Um, they are meeting with their city councilors. They've set up websites. A lot of pet stores are involved in this too, because they profit handsomely from both selling those animals and also selling selling supplies for them. And they're lobbying city council. They're not happy. So what we really need to do is have Winnipeg city councilors hear from the rest of us who, of course, want restrictions on exotic pet ownership. And of course, um, in support of the other measures in the bylaw too, like ending BSL and tethering and um, trapping and glue traps. So uh, Animal Justice has an action page. You can find it on our website. The consultation closes on September 7th, but that doesn't mean that you can't still contact the city councilor or the mayor after that. Um, It doesn't look like this will actually move forward or be approved until sometime later this year, likely December. So there's lots of time to have your say. So please do it. The timeline looks quite long. So yeah, anybody in Winnipeg, animal lovers, we need you. Because like like Camille said, the exotic pet ownership crew is quite vocal. I know that I think Caitlin from Animal Justice is uh, making up something perhaps for the Winnipeg Free Press, um, along with Brittany, our, our also former guest on the podcast uh, from the Winnipeg Humane Society. And then, of course, I'm going to try and get in there and say something. So we're going to do what we can to try and uh, mobilize those of us who really care about the actual well-being of animals. Yeah, super important. 
All right. So a two-part series in the Vancouver Sun out of British Columbia about police shooting animals. Super interesting series. I was actually interviewed for it. Um, the writer, Suzanne Bastod, Obostad, um, had a fellowship to research and, and write this report. It's very in-depth and impressive. Um, what she found is, is like essentially that there's a lot of police killings of animals. Police are more likely to shoot animals than humans. Um, she, she goes over, sort of focuses on out west cases because she's in BC and it's a BC paper. So a lot of, um, you know, instances in British Columbia, but goes over the horrible case in Lethbridge as well, where a police officer ran over a deer repeatedly to kill the deer. Oh God. One of the worst videos I've ever seen. I'm glad I didn't watch it. Still haunts me. Yeah. Don't ever do it. Don't ever do it. But you know, like the thrust of it to kind of summarize is that, um, there's no use of force on animal trainings for police in training academies. Um, there's often pretty sparse tracking of police use of force against animals. And in general, it's it's, it's not a great situation in terms of like coming up with strategies for police to more humanely deal with animals and collaborating with other agencies. So uh, we'll share the links to these two stories in the um, you know, podcast show notes if you want to learn more. Um, but, you know, essentially there's there's a couple of lawsuits over wrongful death situations right now that our friend of the podcast, Rebecca Bredder, a lawyer in, in BC, is dealing with. And um, I, you know, I hope that those lawsuits do prompt some change in police policies for animals because sometimes that's the only thing that does is a settlement and a lawsuit. Yeah, there was some really uh, stark sort of stats and and uh, thoughts in these pieces. Two that stood out to me, first that the whoever was in charge of um, the use of force training in the police force in BC actually was quoted as saying that this wasn't an issue, that there was bigger priorities, that this isn't even really on their radar to talk about how to reduce the killing of animals. And that even the fact that they, they the stat is that three out of four shootings in BC are on animals. Yeah. That's crazy yeah. to me. Three out of four times that a police officer shoots their gun, it's at an animal. Yeah, that is, is wild. It's wild. And it's not and a priority. So little. Yeah, not a priority. I know. I, I mean, I, I, I'm not actually surprised. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. I'm also not happy. <laughs> well, that's kind of, oh. that's kind of a, the way we live. <laughs> yeah, basically. Not surprised, not happy. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, I mean, I think it's a really it's 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 really good to have sort of a compilation of what evidence does exist about this, and uh, you know, I hope this type of journalism does prompt some policy change because it's undoubtedly important. All right, back to a story that we've discussed previously. Uh, sad news out of Connecticut. So Mystic Aquarium imported five belugas from Marineland, and it's been a saga. Um, I won't get into all the back and forth and all the details of this, but we were not happy about the transfers, but also thought it was probably better for them to go than to stay at Marineland because Marineland was overcrowded, still is overcrowded. Um, unfortunately, one of those belugas has now died. Havoc the beluga died at Mystic Aquarium only about three months after he was transported there. Just heartbreaking, Jess. They, they're saying very various things that are conflicting too in the reports. So they're saying Havoc was sick when he arrived, but then that begs the question, why did authorities let him be shipped in the first place if he was sick? Because you need a health certificate to do so. So somebody's not telling the full truth here, either to authorities initially or to the public now. Um, one other beluga is now sick and Mystic seems to be saying, oh yeah, they're getting better. Um, but there is sort of information filtering out there suggesting that all five belugas were not doing well. And, and that was as a result of conditions at Marineland. 
um, way back when they were considering which animals to ship, they actually had an original five and they had to switch out two or maybe three of these belugas because they were too sick to travel. So there's just a lot of unanswered questions raised by this. And I think authorities in Ontario and Canada need to get over there to marine land, see what's up and give us some answers. Yeah, I think this would be another exact example of not surprised, but not happy. I mean, we know captivity kills uh, and we know transport kills. And they were talking about havoc having this particular condition that could be exacerbated by transport. And here we are. So again, who who are the vets? Like what kind of ethical uh, measurement are you working with that you are either saying that they were healthy or they're not healthy or they left unhealthy or they arrived unhealthy. Um, it really sounds like there's a lot going on behind the scenes that we are not being allowed to know. Yeah, the lack of transparency about this is utterly baff- utterly baffling. I mean, it's not baffling. It's not surprising, I right? guess. Not surprising, not happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not surprised, not happy. But uh, what is interesting is because this case now has a U.S. link, I mean, the whale died in the U.S., U.S. regulators are so much better about Canadian ones at keeping the public informed because they they just proactively release information. So I'm hopeful, basically only for that reason, that we may actually learn more, not because of anything Canada or Ontario will do, but because the U.S. is involved. Mm, good point. Yeah. All right. Sad news. I'm sorry to share that with everyone. Um, some happier news. Our last news item of the day. Animal justice is going back to the Supreme Court of Canada just to make arguments in a case as an intervener. Woohoo! Ooh, this is a very interesting situation. When I was reading through it, I don't fully have my brain wrapped around it. Uh, but yeah, explain it because I want I want to hear it from you. Okay, so it's a case about public interest standing for um, people or non-people who want to bring cases before the court. So the case really has to do with how animals and animal advocates can access the justice system. So public interest standing is this doctrine where, well, let me just back up. Standing is a necessary precondition to getting your case into court. You have to be able to show to the court that you have some right to bring that case forward. You're not just a busybody. You're not just showing up with some claim that doesn't affect you. You have to show that you have a connection to the case. So you can do that two ways. You can have private interest standing where you say, my rights are directly affected by X, this situation. Or you can have public interest standing, which is where you say that there's a matter of broader public interest at play and someone should bring this case before the court and you're well-placed to do that. And that's one of the main ways that animal advocates get cases before the court is through public interest standing. So a number of years ago, there was a really good case on public interest standing, the downtown downtown Eastside Sex Workers United Against Violence case. And it's kind of coming back now in a slightly different format. So that case opened the doors to a greater extent to public interest applicants, which was great. And we now have a new case at the BCs, the um, Council of Canadians with Disabilities and the Attorney General of BC. So this case considers how public interest standing should be granted, including when individuals and an or, or an organization could launch a lawsuit on somebody else's behalf. So let's say there might be somebody out there who could be placed to bring a lawsuit, but they, for various reasons, are not in a position to do so. In this case, the Council of Canadians with Disabilities, they're saying that there might be people out there with mental health issues who could challenge this regime that they're saying is unconstitutional. But those folks aren't really capable of doing so for various structural and systemic challenges Mm -hmm. and to do with their own personal health. So there's a bunch of complicated legal issues raised by this, which I'm not going to get into the details too much at this point, because I think what we'll do is we'll have Caitlin Mitchell on, Mm -hmm. staff lawyer with Animal Justice, who's representing Animal Justice in this case, and she'll go over it in more detail. But bottom line, the uh, the case is going to be heard, I think, on November 9th, which just is so funny. That is the six-year anniversary of when Animal Justice last went to the Supreme Court. Oh, well, wow. When we first went to the Supreme Court. I know. What are the chances? That's kismet. That's got to be a good sign. 
I think so. I think so. So it's exciting. Hopefully we'll make some good progress for animals. What we want the court to understand is that animals are really in a vulnerable situation. They don't have the resources to bring cases for themselves. They can't instruct counsel. They really rely on groups like animals, justice, and other individual animals to put these cases before the courts. And unfortunately, what we've seen so often, and we've spoken about this on the podcast, is that when advocates try to bring those cases forward, judges say, no, you don't have standing. Mm. Um, that happened in the glue trap case in Toronto, which was unfortunate. It happened in the Lucy, the elephant case now twice. (laughs) So there's an issue here that needs to be addressed and hopefully the court will be receptive. Oh, it sounds like a very big deal. I'm very excited to learn more. Yeah. The Grid and Goat is Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary and an online store that ships across Canada and abroad. The Grin and Goat's your one-stop shop for everything, including t-shirts for animal advocacy, footwear, accessories, kids' fashion, personal care products, zero-waste products, outerwear, and various items for your home. Vegan shopping has never been easier. Whether you're shopping for yourself or buying gifts for a loved one, you have the comfort of knowing that everything at The Grin and Goat is completely animal-free. Between September 10th to 12th, you can save 20% off all regular items in-store and online for the Grid and Goat's fourth year anniversary sale. And as a Pod Order podcast listener, you can also save 15% off LaFrick backpacks and pegs during the entire month of September by using the code PAWSEPTEMBER at gridandgoat.ca. All right, then let's get into our main interview. All right, everyone, for our main topic today, I'm really excited to welcome back a repeat guest, Edie Bowles from Advocates for Animals out of the UK. Welcome to the podcast, Edie. Hi, Camille. Thanks for having me back. Well, yeah, listeners may remember, if you've been with us for a while, you may recall that Edie was actually a guest back on episode 26, way back in 2019, to talk about founding Advocates for Animals, which is the UK's first animal law-focused law firm. They work exclusively for clients working on animal protection issues including many of the largest nonprofits in the UK and do all kinds of groundbreaking work. So um, it's really great to have you back, Edie. And I, I wonder, just before we get into the substance of what we're going to talk about today, which is one of your very exciting new cases for chickens, um, I wonder if you could just share with our listeners, because so many listeners are law students and they're looking to get into this field and they like to be inspired by other people's paths. I wonder if you could just share a teeny bit about your journey towards becoming an animal lawyer and founding your firm. Yeah, of course. Um... Yeah, it's been a tale of twists and turns really over the years. And now, I mean, now I feel very settled in the field. But um, how did I get into it? So I think um, it's true of anyone that currently works in this area, although this is changing. You know, I didn't set off on this journey thinking I would, you know, become an animal lawyer. I had a passion for, you know, for animals. And, you know, I really cared about the subject, but I just didn't see the opportunities kind of presenting themselves. So as a result of that, I kind of went along my law journey thinking that I would be a lawyer in, you know, in some other area, a more conventional area. And then, you know, volunteer or um, for kind of animal causes on the side of that. However, along that kind of journey, I got very lucky and um, an opportunity came up to work in-house at a charity, Cruelty for International, to work in-house, not as their general counsel, but actually as a campaign lawyer in-house at Cruelty Free International, which in itself is incredibly unusual. There are there are animal lawyer jobs, but they tend to be, you know, your contract work and the employment stuff um, in, in these kind of organizations. 
So that position just, well, not only did it give me my, obviously my start as an animal lawyer, but it also gave me the foundation of what we do today at Advocates for Animals, which is this kind of pioneering legal work that helps our clients, um, so animal groups, activists, individuals, helps them use the animal law available to further animal protection and to ensure that those animal laws are enforced. So it shouldn't be as groundbreaking as it actually is because, you know, this law exists. So why is it groundbreaking that there's someone making sure that it's applied but it but it really is it really is unusual and I mean we're seeing huge changes as a result of there being you know now lawyers available to do the work so yeah so that was kind of my way in started at Cruelty Free International and then from there set up Advocates for Animals um, where I am today and at Advocates for Animals like I said we um, work with a range of clients on a range of legal issues and I'm just uh, incredibly grateful for you know for having the the job that I have it's it feels alien to me now the thought of doing a job that I wasn't passionate about but I absolutely know that there was a time that that was the norm yes yes I know that feeling too well it's really inspiring what you've managed to accomplish and I hope any students out there listening to this will you know think about the possibilities of starting something and following a similar path so thanks for that, Edie. Um, what we want to talk about with you today is a really exciting, interesting case that's been getting some press in the UK that you are bringing on behalf of the Humane League UK. Um, it's about chickens. I wonder, maybe you could start off just describing your client a little, what the Humane League does, what its interests are. Yeah, of course. So the Humane League uh, UK, so they, I mean, your listeners might be aware of the Humane League in the United States, which is where which is where the charity uh, first started. Started. So essentially, it's an organisation that works to improve the conditions for farmed animals. Um, they have various campaigns, but one of the campaigns that they've been working on for a while now is the Better Chicken Commitment. And the Better Chicken Commitment is essentially a commitment that um, every kind of company within the, I guess, supply chain of chicken production um, can sign up to, which basically commits them to higher welfare breed. Um, I'll come back to that when talking a bit about the case, but essentially, yeah, like I said, any business can, can sign up to this commitment. And already it's, it's made huge progress. I, th- I believe they have something like 260 companies that have signed up, including KFC and Subway. So there's some big names attached to the Better Chicken commitment. However, it was from this campaign to get, you know, these organizations, to get these companies to sign up to the Better Chicken commitment that, you know, through working with us on, on various other issues, Issues, you know, it was brought to their attention that there was potentially um, legal breaches going on in the standard practice of chicken farming. So this has been kind of a while in the making discussing discussing this case and, and moving it forward. But it was actually through through their campaigning work that they explored this further and, and came to us. Yeah. And so it's really interesting. I mean, when you think about the trajectory of welfare reforms for farmed animals, and especially in the states where they've managed to get a number of laws passed by ballot initiatives, popular votes down there, um, there's been things like, uh, you know, cage-free commitments for chickens who are used to lay eggs. There's been crate-free commitments for pigs. But when it comes to broiler chickens who are bred and killed for meat, there has been historically less progress because they're not actually kept in cages. Uh, They Mm. suffer from a whole host of other welfare concerns. And as you've mentioned, one of those is just that their bodies are 
engineered and designed to grow so quickly that they suffer some pretty serious health effects from that. So, you know, very interesting kind of issues there. And I'm glad to see someone sort of getting at a legal route to addressing that because I don't think it's really happened so much to date. Um, Yeah. So, so from what I understand, you filed an application for judicial review with the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, which has some oversight over the regulations affecting farmed animals in the UK. And I will just say for our Canadian listeners, how jealous I am that you actually have regulations protecting the well-being of farmed animals because Canada currently does not. So that's cool to start with. But um, yeah, so my understanding is you're essentially saying that DEFRA is refusing to follow the welfare of farmed animals regulations, which states that, uh, I'm just going to quote from the news story here that talks about your case, animals may only be kept for farming purposes if it can be reasonably expected on the basis of their genotype or phenotype that they be, that they can be kept without any detrimental effect on their health or welfare. So are you essentially saying that the cruelty is built into these breeds? Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. I, I wanted to circle back to your praise of our regulations because, I mean... <laughs> I'm sorry, I know. For you, you're probably like, oh, God, the regulations are terrible. But for us, we're just like, oh, you have some? <laughs> well, it's just interesting, isn't it? Because actually, regardless of... And this is, to be honest, something that I harp on about quite a lot. You know, it's all very well having this stuff on paper. But the reality is, if we, you know, if we're taking... So just this example, if we're taking the... the meat chicken industry, the fact that there are these kind of breeds that are grown at such a rate that they are experiencing this high degree of suffering, which is probably no different to what's happening in Canada. What are these regulations actually doing? And so to be honest, that's why, you know, I'm really happy that Advocates for Animals now exists as a, you know, as, a, as potentially a vehicle to to change that. Um, but, you know, it's not going to be without challenges because as we've learned from, you know, previous experience, these regulators have a wide discretion when interpreting the the legislation but that's that's a that's a something else so in terms of this case um yeah you read out essentially you read out the the provision that this entire case hangs on and you are absolutely right that the premise of of the case is that these fast growing chickens cannot be kept without a detrimental effect on their health or welfare there's a vast amount of scientific study that shows that this is the case and in fact the, the um our, the, our case is actually um following a report from the rspca which whilst prior to this report there were you know there were studies that showed fast growing breeds had specific ailments what the rspca study did was it looked comprehensively at the at three fast growing breeds from the three biggest chicken breeding companies and compared them all to a slower growing breed and looked at a whole host of health and welfare issues. And this study found that these fast growing breeds and also known as conventional breeds had significantly higher mortality, poorer leg and hock health, poorer plumage health. And more, more of the birds were affected by breast muscle disease, such as wooden breast and white striping. Um, and were also found to be kind of less active spent less time you know walking and standing um, and more time feeding and sitting so again just general behavioral indicators so anyway so this study was essentially what we launched the judicial review um 
off of on the grounds that this was now the evidence to prove that they cannot be kept without detriment to their health or welfare. And then actually since that, since the RSPCA study, there's actually been three subsequent studies that have supported the findings of the RSPCA, um, including actually one from, from Canada, the University of Guelph. Is that how you pronounce it? Sorry, That's right. Saying. That's right. Dr. Um, Ian Duncan, I believe. Oh, there you go. And the University of Bristol and the Royal Veterinary College um, in the UK. So these three studies essentially supported the findings from the RSPCA report. So we argue that there's scientific consensus that they cannot be kept without detriment to their health or welfare. Um, so yeah, that's that's essentially um, the main the main argument in our case. However, we do also have a separate ground, and that's essentially the monitoring system that's in place to detect this detriment. We argue that it's wholly inadequate. I can go a bit more into that, but perhaps let's just kind of pick apart the the, the primary ground, if you will. Yeah, so that's interesting. And it's really fantastic, I will say, that researchers are looking at this because to bring forward a solid case, you need evidence. And without scientific studies, it's pretty difficult to do that. Um, you know, I think it's really noteworthy this news article that, that you sent me that I'm quoting from, I believe it's from the, um, is it the Guardian? The Times. The Times. Time. Thank you. But it mentions that 90% of the billion chickens slaughtered annually for meat in the UK are from these fast growing breeds who can gain up to a hundred grams a day. And they take only 35 days to reach slaughter weight maturity. Uh, maturity is actually the wrong word because they're not mature. They're still babies at 35 days, but they're large enough to kill for meat. And of course, chicken growth rates have quadrupled in the past 60 years. And that's why chicken has become so popular and the cheapest meat, um, which is really troubling. And I'm, I'm sure that it's a similar trajectory in the UK. I haven't looked up your stats, but in Canada, we've seen sales and production of red meat declining, but chickens really skyrocketing. And because chickens are smaller, you need to kill more of them to get to the same amount of meat, which means more suffering um, per pound of chicken flesh produced. And of course, they live in very, very troubling conditions, and there have been very few welfare reforms to protect them to date. So that's one of the reasons I'm so happy to see this case and think it's so important. Um, so are you like to your knowledge, has DEFRA, the regulator, really studied this issue much before or turned its mind to it? Yes, DEFRA has, in fact, turned their mind to this. In fact, one of the things that we argue is that the fact that they've looked in this at this issue before highlights the fact that they you know, are aware that there are questions over, you know, over the um, the welfare the health and welfare of of these breeds the one of the one of the problems we may face in this judicial review is that when there's a question of science involved judges are going to be very reluctant to interfere with defra's wide discretion now our argument is that you know there's scientific consensus there's there's you know the rspca report was the first comprehensive report that looked at this and the evidence is conclusive however prior to the rspca report there have been various studies that looked at very specific things so might have looked at you know just leg health in in isolation or behavioral traits in, in isolation and in those studies there, there were some kind of mixed results and you know I don't doubt that DEFRA might rely on some of these studies but as I mentioned this is the first time that there has been a comprehensive study there has not been any other comprehensive study that shows that these breeds you know can be kept without detriment and the only comprehensive study that exists plus the three subsequent shows that they can't be so the scientific consensus is clear but yes in terms of whether DEFRA have looked into this, um, they have, but not comprehensively like the RSPCA. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it just seems so obvious to me based on the wording of that regulation. <laughs> 
<laughs> that it's problematic to be allowing these types of chickens to be bred based on their genotype that clearly causes a detrimental effect. So that'll be that'll be interesting. So Edie, you mentioned a moment ago that there was another issue that you've raised in the case. Do you want to fill us in on that a little? Yes. Yeah, so the second ground, so obviously ground one is us um, challenging DEFRA for an unlawful policy, which essentially permits these fast growing breeds contrary to the provision that we've just spoken about. Now, ground two is in relation to the monitoring system that they have in place to detect the detriment to health or welfare. In our pre-action correspondence, we asked DEFRA, you know, what monitoring systems they had in place, and they cited what's called the trigger system. Now, before I go into what the trigger system is, I just want to explain to you and your listeners what the law actually says about monitoring chicken welfare. So essentially under the same act, so that's the welfare of farmed animals regulations, um, under under that, uh, under under those regulations, there's essentially, uh, in Schedule 5A, there's essentially a provision um, that requires a certain standard of monitoring. This monitoring takes place in the slaughterhouses to detect kind of welfare indicators in, in, in post-mortems, essentially. Now, the provision states that an official vet, uh, an official vets must evaluate the results of a post-mortem inspection to identify possible indications of poor welfare conditions. So that must take place, that it says that. Um, there's a second requirement that that's put on the official vet that basically says if the mortality rate of the chickens or the results of those post-mortem inspections are consistent with poor animal welfare conditions, then the official vet must communicate this to the keeper of the chickens, but also the Secretary of State, so essentially DEFRA. Now, that's you know that seems fairly straightforward, and it seems actually that the threshold is fairly low that if there's you know indicators of, of poor welfare then these must be reported however as i mentioned defra are implementing what's called the trigger system now we argue that this trigger system sets an unlawfully high threshold the threshold on reporting under the trigger system is essentially i'm just going to i'm just going to read out what it says in fact for in the in the annex of the code of practice for the welfare of meat chickens that details the the trigger system so for the for the welfare reporting, it says that a trigger report is generated if the level of a post-mortem condition is exceptionally high, defined as greater than six standard deviations above the average. Now, you can see how that is completely inconsistent with what the regulations require. The regulations don't say anything about a threshold needing to be exceptionally high. And also, if you set the bar as six deviations above the average, I mean, of course, that's, that's huge. You know, the, that's huge. The average itself may be huge. Right. You know, it's, it's absolutely inconsistent with this with the threshold placed uh, under the under the legislation. And in addition, for reporting high mortality, a trigger report is generated when the daily mortality rate is unusually high, which is defined as three standard deviations above the average. So we've got that kind of relationship between average and standard deviations in addition in addition the the level of three other post-mortem conditions so the welfare conditions that are also being inspected must also be high which is defined as above the average so you can see how mortality is just not being reported right they're basically doing everything they can to insulate themselves from having to report this precisely wow i've also it's also the case that if you know if, if one welfare issue sorry if several welfare issues are detected on one bird only one of them is reported so it's a complete 
completely inaccurate depiction of, of what's happening on the ground. And we argue unlawfully so. Wow. That's also a really interesting ground. It, um, yeah. So you're essentially saying that the practice is out of step with what the statute requires once again, or the regulation requires. Yeah. Wow. Precisely. Well, that's super interesting. Um, well, thank you for filling us in about all of those fascinating issues in this case. I'm really going to be watching this. What's the timeline like for a case of this nature in the UK? How quickly do you expect uh, for it to be heard or for there to be preliminary motions or, or what do you think the next step will be? So we have applied. So the next step is um, getting permission. So we'll have to wait and see if we've been successful. We suspect that'll be around maybe three months. It really does depend on how busy they are. And then after, you know, after that point, it's it, again, it's just really difficult to say. I mean, most, the judicial reviews I've been involved in in the past have probably been a year from start to finish. So mm-hmm. from application to finishing to getting the judgment. So perhaps we're looking at that timeline. But I must stress that even though the arguments, you know, they seem so obvious and they seem so strong. One of the problems we do face with judicial reviews in this country, and I imagine perhaps it's true everywhere, is really the wide discretion that's given to these regulators. So as confident as I am in our arguments and as obvious as they must seem, I've, I'm definitely, you know, I'm definitely cautious of, of the outcome. Mm, yes. Yes. Regulatory discretion is always a challenge. A um, little bit of a different situation here since we don't really have any animal welfare regulations, <laughs> but I appreciate the, the difficulties. Uh, I just want to follow up with one other question on, on something you said about getting permission. So you've applied. Um, does that mean that you're seeking standing still to be able to bring this case and that the judge has to grant that or is, it, is that something else? Yeah, no, that's something else. So we will, you know, we standing is absolutely one of the reasons why we might be refused permission, but mm. I would be surprised if that was, you know, a reason because, you know, as I mentioned, the Humane League is very active in this area. They've, their leaders, in fact, you know, with this, with the better tricking commitment work. So I'd be surprised if that's the reason. It would just really come down to whether the judge feels like there's a case to be heard. So we, you know, we really hope that they, they find in our favor. Oh, so you essentially have like a, there's a test you have to meet where the, the case is it's got like a reasonable basis in law is what you're saying? Precisely. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. That is sort of a, a test that we would have to meet here in terms of getting public interest standing. It would be a consideration. Okay. Wow. Well, Edie, thank you. This is a fascinating case. I'm so happy that you're bringing it and that the Humane League is spearheading it as well. I think it's, uh, you know, could have really exciting implications if it wins. And if it doesn't, it's also, uh, you know, just reminding the public of what the chicken industry is up to and how these birds are raised. I do know that uh, it seems like the National Farmers Union is already complaining and saying that the better chicken commitment is very expensive and it'll increase greenhouse gases because of less efficient production. Interesting to see the meat industry trying to pretend it cares about greenhouse gases. But there we go. I guess that's always the classic response from the meat industry is it'll be more expensive for consumers. Yeah, I, I was slightly surprised by that response because, you know, first of all, this case isn't against them. It's against an unlawful policy set by DEFRA. If, you know, this is under, this is under the legislation, these requirements are under the legislation and all our client is trying to do is to make sure that this legislation is followed. In terms of the economic, you know, considerations, there may be an initial increase in expense, but, you know, as these breeds become more popular, it seems inevitable that they will also become more affordable. And in any event, you know, should we really be reducing animal products to such an extent where the suffering is so high? 
why. And surely the National Pharmacy Union would not agree with that. So I was surprised by their response. Yeah, yeah. Well, the poultry industry, the meat industry in general has profited off of suffering for far too long. And the fact that they're being asked to take some moderate steps and, you know, in this context, but many other contexts too, to address animal welfare and their response is, oh, more expensive is really just, you know, not enough at this point. People care enough about these issues that um, I don't think that type of rhetoric actually resonates with the public anymore. That, but that's just my view. Absolutely. Well, Edie, it's been great to have you back on. Thank you so much for joining us and filling us in on this very important case. And we look forward to following it. Thank you so much for having me, Camille. Heroes and Zeros. And now for everyone's favorite segment, Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. (laughs) So who's our hero, Jess? This week, our hero, who has been a hero and a zero in my books, back and forth a few times, but once again on top, A&W, for their new Beyond Chicken Nuggets, which everyone has tried, everyone has had an opinion about, and for the most part, it's a major win. I know I took my daughter Clover to go try them, and she absolutely loved them. I I think I liked them. I liked them. Didn't love them, but I know that A&W has never really been known for the, having the best chicken nuggets, right? We're just glad they're there. I'm glad it's something I can grab for my kid and I when we're looking for fast food. They're delicious. They have dipping sauces that are vegan. So all in all, I think it's a major win and I hope it sticks around. I hope so too. And yeah, I, my understanding is that this is still a trial phase yes, and may gotta, not keep them forever. Let's buy a lot of them. <laughs> Get out there. I mean, I'm doing my part. I think I've had them probably six to se- six to seven times in the last three weeks. <laughs> That's you but doing your part, Camille. Thank you for being part of the cause. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> but I actually, I think on Twitter, okay, I gave them a 10 out of 10 because I really do think I they're think like I gave moist, like a, I think juicy. I gave them like an 8.2 or a 7.9. You gave them a 7.8 7.8. <laughs> but again, it would have been more, but I can't eat gluten and I ate them anyways. So that's my fault because I go to Beyond Meat for having not, for not having gluten. So this, right. I was like, oh man. But that's just my bias. So if I were taking that part away, then, you know, I'd give them a higher, a higher mark because they were pretty darn good. Pretty darn good. They come with sweet and sour or barbecue sauces with the vegan options. And of course, you can make it a whole meal with Beyond Burger there, too. So overall, just like anytime you're in a bind, you need something quick to grab A&W. It's the go to. So hero of this episode. Oh, and important to shout out too that their onion rings have recently become vegan for a while. They had milk products and they do not anymore. So you can go for the onion rings without any worry. Oh my God, that's great. Yes. I love onion rings. Yes, they're so good. I was so disappointed when I first moved back to Canada and realized that you couldn't have them, but no, they changed it. They changed it. No more stupid dairy powder for no reason. Oh, bane of everyone's existence. Yes, dairy powder. Dairy, Milk inappropriate powder. dairy yes. insertion. <laughs> Thank you for that, A&W. You are my hero. <laughs> All right. And for every hero, this is zero. And this episode, our hero or our zero is Reptilia, which is a reptile zoo that is planning to open in downtown Toronto. I shouldn't say planning. They want to open in downtown Toronto. They've sent letters to the city. They're trying to get support. Basically, Reptilia has all these large reptiles, snakes, geckos, lizards, etc. They also take these animals out on, quote, educational shows, which are really just birthday parties and senior citizens homes. 
homes and schools and all this stuff that we know is is not only really bad for the animals because it's incredibly stressful yes. for them. Reptiles are not like cats and dogs. They are often super stressed out by humans, by eye contact, by all of these things. They also regularly carry zoonotic diseases. No kidding. That's a thing. They can bite people. It's just a terrible idea all around. So this zoo wants to open in Toronto. They want to open in the former Purina Pawsway. I doubt you've probably ever oh, been there, Jess, but it was this, it was actually this cool space on the waterfront down by Harborfront Center where it was like sort of a dog-friendly space. Huh. It was like stuff for dogs there. We held our holiday party there once. It was quite nice. Why did it close? Sounds so fun. I don't, I don't know why it closed. That's a good question. Maybe pandemic related, uh, but yeah. So now there's this empty building. There's a space up for grabs and Reptilia is trying to move in. So there's going to be more to this. Um, I know a lot of folks are very interested in trying to make sure they don't move in. And there's a lot of hurdles they have to get through first because it's actually illegal to keep exotic animals, many exotic animals in Toronto already. And they would need an exemption from the exotic animal bylaw to be able to operate. Mm. Um, the Toronto Zoo has one right now. So they're trying to say we should get an exemption like the zoo does. Ah. And yeah, lots of reasons to oppose that. So they're the zero and we'll keep you posted on how you can get involved in stopping that. Yes, good. Like, gotta stop that. All right, everyone. It's been fun. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Thanks, Camille. This was fun. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pod and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. You can find me on Twitter at Jess L. Reed. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Nickerson. See you next time on Paw and Order. For more great iRule podcasts, visit iRulePod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ah!